Welcome to the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm the director. And we're delighted to have here this morning Liam Fox, Secretary of State for International Trade, who has been in that post for almost three years and is also, of course, MP for North Somerset. And he's going to talk to us particularly about the, 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 the department that he is running. It's very recent, comparatively recent creation and the kind of challenges it's facing now and then we will fire questions at him. Liam, very warm welcome. Thank you very much. Well, good morning, everyone. When uh, people talk about or write about the Department for International Trade, they tend to do so in rather vague terms about what they call trade deals. While trade policy is an important part of what we do, it accounts for less than 20% of our total staff. As an international economic department, we're responsible for helping sell UK goods and services to the rest of the world, negotiating market access for UK exporters, assisting outward direct investment for UK companies into overseas markets, and for foreign direct investment into the UK. So I'm very grateful to the Institute for Government for providing this opportunity to set out how DIT came into existence, its current role, and its future ambitions. And I'm proud to lead a department which has a direct and measurable impact on our prosperity. In 2017-18 alone, we helped UK businesses export goods and services worth around £30.5 billion. Using analysis by the Institute for Economic Affairs, it is estimated that this could potentially generate around £10 billion for the Exchequer. Despite a challenging global economic climate, British exports now stand at a record high of £640 million. That's a year-on-year -year increase of 3%. Since the referendum alone, UK exporters have sold around £1.7 trillion worth of goods and services to the rest of the world. What's more, our efforts to keep the UK in the global spotlight as an attractive place to do business has helped stock levels of foreign direct investment hit another record high of £1.34 trillion. This has helped generate around 1,500 new jobs across the country each week. Between 2016 and 2018, we supported more than 3,500 inward investment projects, creating and safeguarding over 170,000 jobs. And the UK is the number one destination for foreign direct investment in Europe and third in the world, last year behind only China and the United States. It actually seems quite remarkable to me that uh, three years ago, DIT didn't even exist. When I was asked to set up the new department by the Prime Minister in 2016, we had nothing. No desks, no phones, no IT, no office. Uh, and no staff. In fact, on day one, I was 25% uh, of DIT. Today, we're a department of nearly 4,000 people, led by our excellent permanent secretary, uh, Antonio Romeo, and our equally excellent chief trade negotiation advisor, Crawford Faulkner. The UK stands ready to implement an independent and visionary trade policy for the first time in more than 40 years. And it's a truly pivotal moment for the country, and I'm delighted to say that we're starting from a position of strength. 
But I wanted this morning to take a, a step back, as Bronwyn says. How did we get to this point? Where did we start from? And what lessons does it have for the future? When I became Defence Secretary back in 2010, we were faced with reshaping a dysfunctional Ministry of Defence in real time with the £39 billion inherited departmental overspend, a 7% budget cut to be implemented to help reduce the government deficit, two military conflicts in Afghanistan and Libya, a strategic defence review that hadn't been conducted for 12 years, and the loss of around 37% of our civil servants as a consequence of the above. And this experience for me was crucial when it came to creating a new department. And while we needed to develop our policies, our strategy and direction, as well as building the, the infrastructure from which everything else flows, and all in a very short space of time, we were free from the limitations of someone else's structures and constraints. We knew we had to be clear about our purpose from the outset. We had to find a way to incorporate existing organizations like UK Export Finance, our export credit agency. So we organized ourselves around three very distinct pillars, trade policy, including trade agreements, investment promotion, and export promotion. And everyone in our department belongs to one of these. And each of the pillars is owned by a dedicated minister and a dedicated civil service director general. We also had to create an organizational plan to implement these three pillars, build HR and finance capabilities, find office space, and crucially find the best people available to fill them. Setting up a departmental board, including recruiting a team of non-exec board members led by the excellent Simon Walker was crucial as it acts as the central coordinating structure of the entire department. And the board, which I chair, meets around 10 times a year. We just held our 27th board of the department on Monday. And it plays a fundamental role in challenging and scrutinizing the department's business while simultaneously setting our strategic direction and supporting my ministerial team and senior civil servants in delivering our long-term goals. We publish our agenda to our staff worldwide before the board sits so they can comment and feed into it and we inform them of our discussions and decisions afterwards, both by email and by, by video. But even with all this in place, it was clear we had a problem. The UK had not generated its own independent trade policy for more than 40 years, and there were few civil servants or government ministers with direct experience in this highly technical field, and no collective Whitehall memory on which to draw. All of this could seem daunting, but I actually think that the uniqueness and genuine groundbreaking nature of the challenges fueled the excitement and expectation of what lay in store for the department. But pulling together this team in such a short space of time required a great deal of cooperation from across government. Now, some might think that with more than 430,000 employees scattered across the country and internationally, the civil service is unwieldy. 
Actually, nothing could be further from the truth. At its best, few organizations are as dynamic and quick to react as the civil service. So when the call went out for help in staffing DIT, other government departments did all they could to release the people with the right skills. And our team worked frantically over the summer so that we could hit the ground running when Parliament returned from the summer break in 2016. There's not a day goes by, I have to say, when I'm not impressed by the dedication, the drive and the professionalism of those who have helped to create the Department for International Trade, who provide world-class advice and who've delivered on our objectives as the structures have bedded in. However, while we had some very experienced people from the outset, they did not necessarily come with the policy expertise that we required. That's why we made it an early priority to reach out to the people who already had the expertise that we needed, holding consultations with trade experts around the world. We were able to draw on the skills and expertise from strategic partners such as Canada, Australia and New Zealand who advise us, for example, on establishing our own trade remedies function. And there was a great deal for us to learn with policy details like procurement, intellectual property, tariffs or rules of origin requiring a whole new level of understanding or a different perspective in the context of an independent UK trade policy. That's why we unveiled the tra international trade profession last year. This is the newest civil service profession and is designed to recruit and train a new generation of international trading talent. More than 2,500 civil servants have joined so far and are being equipped with the skills they need to make our country the great trading nation that we can be. Another challenge was the need for DIT to become a credible, data-driven, intelligence-led and more efficient organization. This meant developing our analytical, statistical and data science capabilities and rolling out a new range of surveys and data collections to inform the development of trade and investment policy. We laid the groundwork to build solid relationships with the ONS and HMRC to deliver the necessary trade statistics and we pushed forward with the OECD and the WTO cutting-edge initiatives, uh, developing new measurements of digital trade and trade and value added. I remember when we started commenting on the lack of data that seemed to be there. And I remember saying that if I'd made decisions when I was still practicing medicine on the basis of the same level of information, I would probably have found myself up in front of the General Medical Council. But we have built that capability and are continuing to build it today. We also made sure that businesses were involved in helping shape the department from the outset by opening up a channel of communication to understand what mattered to them while at the same time opening the eyes of many companies to the potential of what was coming down the track. And we expanded our World Trade Organization mission in Geneva as a very early priority, in fact, within days to lay the foundations of when we take up our seat as an independent member. So having got and made a start at the right people in the right places, we needed to set a clear direction for the department. So in my first major speech as Secretary of State, I made the case in Manchester for free trade and an open 
and liberal trading environment and warned about the dangers of protectionism. And I said there that free trade has and will continue to transform the world for the better and the UK has a golden opportunity to forge a new role for ourselves and importantly for the rest of the world. And I believe this passionately and I think that setting out this intellectual creed from the start was essential in shaping the department's culture and its direction. But in a department the size of DIT, with a presence in 108 countries, political direction by my excellent team of ministers and myself can only go so far on a day-to-day -day basis. So we wanted to create a set of values that went to the very heart of everything that we do. We called it the DIT spirit. And central to this is our vision to create a UK that trades its way to prosperity, to stability, and to security. And our values of being expert, enterprising, engaged, and inclusive guide how we deliver our vision and what we expect of one another. And these values, in turn, underpinned uh, a raft of behaviors that we expect all staff to model. And by building out our values so early and clearly, we've been able to build a culture of trust and purpose, which in less than three years is, I think, established coherent and cohesive. It's reflected in our people survey results, which have shown consistent improvement in the level of employee engagement across the department. If, of course, there's a downside, it's when the Treasury tell me that we've got a very high uh, application to job ratio, uh, and therefore there's no free market case to see our salaries go up. Now, the efforts of our early senior leadership team to build capacity at pace were quite remarkable. A single departmental plan needed to be built, publicly outlining our core strategic objectives and how we were going to achieve them. Trade and investment sector teams spread across several organizations had to be brought together from UKTI, UK Export Finance, the Trade Directorate team at the Department for Business Innovation and Skills, and overseas teams from the FCO. Other teams, such as the Trade Policy Group, needed to be scaled up very quickly. And teams that didn't even exist, including our corporate functions, such as the Ministerial Strategic, Directorate, Private Offices, Finance, HR and Communications, all needed to be built. So everyone involved in DIT has been, in some way, involved in something groundbreaking. As the Institute for Government has said, the UK is unique in carrying responsibility for export promotion, export finance, trade remedies, and international negotiations in a single department. We also carry export licensing um, on top of that. And this sets us apart from so many of our strategic partners, such as Australia or Canada, the EU or the United States. Indeed, across the non-EU G20 countries, only China and Indonesia have a separate trade department which puts us in a strong position. We are an international economic department of state which has brought together skill sets in trade promotion, trade policy, foreign direct investment, outward direct investment, and export promotion in one place. We also convened the Board of Trade for the first time in 150 years to champion exports, inward investment, and outward direct investment, but most importantly to ensure 
that their benefits are spread across all parts of the United Kingdom. We'll be meeting tomorrow in Belfast and I've been fortunate enough to have senior uh, individuals from across the political parties with experience. Um, Patricia Hewitt, for example, former uh, Secretary uh, of State at, DIT, at DTI uh, is one of our members, Brian Wilson, uh, also has joined us. We've also established a network of Her Majesty's Trade Commissioners who are responsible for our nine global regions. And they were selected from the best talent uh, from both the public and private sectors for their expertise in specific markets from China to the US and everywhere in between. And their job, alongside our trade policy group and our partners across the world, is to secure the best market access, trade and international relationships that the UK will need as demand from growing markets in Asia and growing technologies change over the next decade and more. And our trade commissioners, they set priorities for wide geographical areas and promote the department's work overseas. But they are responsible for their own regional trade plans, setting out our ambitions in those regions for exports, for outward direct investment, and foreign direct investment back to the UK. Now, there were those, there probably still are those, who believe that such a level of autonomy given by a Secretary of State to our Trade Commissioners was, to use the words of Yes Minister, a very brave decision Minister. But I think our, tr our trust has been shown to be very well placed. And I, I've always said there is no point in having the most intelligent and most intuitive staff if you don't allow them to use their intelligence and their intuition to actually be able to serve the organisation better. As a department, we've continued to run the Exporting is Great campaign to raise awareness amongst UK businesses about how exporting uh, can help firms to grow. We've launched the online great.gov.uk platform, which has, amongst other things, a, a live directory of exporting opportunities. And for the first time anywhere, a government, this government, is putting business directly in touch with potential customers overseas and some 149,300 exporting opportunities have been advertised since the service's launch to UK businesses. And we're continuing to support the excellent work of UK Export Finance, the world's first credit agency, which this year celebrates its 100th birthday. And its groundbreaking and innovative work remains as relevant today as it did when it was first created with some £50 billion worth of financing available in 65 international currencies. Last year, we launched the new export strategy to make Britain a 21st century exporting superpower. And through this, we are informing, connecting and financing businesses of all sizes in a bid to increase our exports from 30% to 35% of our GDP, moving us to the top of the G7. One thing that struck me, however, is that not everyone understands the value of what we sell. So, this morning's Check Your Awake quiz, if I were to ask you to rank the following sectors in order of their estimated export contribution to the UK economy, with the greatest at the top, what would you say? So you have insurance and pensions, whiskey, 
defense and education. Where do you rank them one to four? Well, it might surprise you to know that based on the latest figures, education would come top at 19.9 billion pounds. Based on the latest ONS figures, the total export of insurance and pension services was just behind at 18.8 billion. The defense sector comes in at 5.9 billion in the same period and whiskey exports were around 5 billion last year. Now, drawing comparisons is always a bit of a minefield and I want to make clear that while these are all official figures, I'm not comparing like with like. But I think it gives us an idea of the huge diversity and strength of the UK's exports and not always in sectors that the public might readily think of as being exports for the UK. We've also secured a deal with the WTO to remain within its government procurement agreements providing access to the 1.3 trillion a year's worth of procurement opportunities in the global public tender market in a no-deal scenario. We've agreed, agreed a no-deal tariff policy across Whitehall to minimise cost to business, mitigate price impacts on consumers and support UK producers against unfair trade practices. In the event of a no-deal exit, 87% of total imports to the UK by value will be eligible for tariff-free access. We've also set up a Trade Remedies Investigations Directorate to ensure the UK can continue to provide support to domestic industries to counter unfair subsidies or dumping. And we've worked to ensure that we have bilateral agreements in place to ensure continuity of trade with key markets currently covered by existing EU trade arrangements worth £71 billion, whether in the event of no deal or probably more importantly after the proposed implementation period. Now I could go on but I think you probably get the picture. What we have achieved in three years is working for Britain and I would just like to say that I'm enormously proud and grateful to my team. We're helping business access new markets with new tools and new techniques to improve the living standards of people not just at home but around the world who are benefiting from greater choice at lower prices. This in turn helps drive global prosperity, contributes to global stability and security and underpins the government's agenda for a global Britain. We're on the cusp of striking out with our own trade policy for the first time in more than four decades and when we do so we will have the freedom to shape a better future not just for ourselves and our own people but for the wider world too. As I have often said we don't see trade as an end in itself. We see trade as a means to an end. It is a way by which we can help spread prosperity. Spreading prosperity helps underpin social cohesion. Social cohesion underpins political stability and political stability is the building block of our collective security and it's a continuum that cannot be interrupted without unwanted consequences. All we require is the courage to seize the opportunities that are out there and my department stands ready to help the country do just that. Thank you. William Fox, thank you very much indeed. Um, uh, for that portrait of the, uh, of the department and what is facing it. Let me ask you a few things. There's going to be a lot of questions and I, wa I want to get around uh, absolutely as many as, as we can. Um, let's start with um, 
the biggest trade negotiation that the UK is going to do in the foreseeable future, which is with the EU, assuming we do leave the EU. Um, is your department going to have a central role on that? Because at the moment, the EU negotiations are being done by the Prime Minister and the department for exiting the EU, and you get to do the rest of the world. When do you get in on the main show in town? Well, what's, um, what's key, you're absolutely right, what's key to that is getting the architecture right so that as we get into that phase of negotiating uh, our trading relationship with Europe, although the future relationship is more than just about trade because it brings in security and a number of other things, um, but it's getting a central architecture to make sure that we don't get divergence um, in that whatever commitments we make, for example, in regulatory alignment uh, with the European Union doesn't um, have a, uh, an unintended consequence in terms of the relationship we're having elsewhere. So that's pretty much the discussions we're having at the moment. How do you create a single architecture that makes sure we don't get the possibility of divergence? Clearly, DIT has to play a major role in that because, as you say, we have that wider uh, responsibility in negotiations, not just in trade agreements, but because we, we hold um, the export and investment pieces as well. If there were an agreement on uh, retaining some kind of customs union with the EU, um, even if a temporary one, what happens to the work of your department? Well, as I said, 80% of our work yeah. um, is about exports and investment. Um, and that there is a sort of narrative out there that the only thing that we ever do are trade agreements. Well, first of all, we're not allowed to do trade agreements until after we've left the European Union. Um, and it seems that we've been quite busy so far. Um, so, uh, uh, a great deal would go on. Um, your implied question is, would it have an impact on the trade policy element? Yes, of course it would. And uh, there would be a major disincentive for other countries to want to negotiate with us in a period where they didn't know when the end of our customs union with the European Union would be. Uh, and it's likely, therefore, that they would delay um, those discussions. Um, it's not something, as you know, I want to see. No, your views on, on customs union and what you would like to see are, are, are well known. Your, your current views, you forgive me, I was looking at your website for uh, North Somerset um, this morning and saw that you have an article on there that you wrote some years ago, in fact, in 2012, for the Mail on Sunday, in which you say that the best way forward is for Britain to renegotiate a new relationship with the European Union, one based on an economic partnership involving a customs union and a single market in goods and services. And I was wondering what, how would you explain what had changed in your view? Well, that was in the context that there was not an option to leave the European Union, yep. um, which we then got mm. and which I was very keen to seize uh, by being involved in the campaign. Um, but it also gives you an idea of how quickly that, that policy evolved, because back then, that was 2012, mm. Mm. Um, when I wanted us to move back to purely an economic relationship yes. uh, with the EU at that time. Um, but not recognising that there was going to be the opportunity to actually get out. Get out of the, get out of the whole thing. Uh, fair, um, fair point. Let me ask you, but just, just finally, I mean, about the biggest, if you like, dispute in the world going on at the moment between the US and China, um, uh, which is a trade dispute and more. Um, the UK, uh, as, as you were referring to, is, is about to take its seat in the, uh, take a seat in the WTO as an independent country. Uh, part of the US's dispute with China is about China's failure to observe the obligations of being a WTO member. Are we going to join the US in taking a tough stand on China over that? Well, I had five um, 
visits to Beijing last year, mm. five to Washington. Um, and we were very clear um, that uh, we are fully behind the WTO. We believe in a rules-based international system because the alternative to a rules-based international system in trade would be a deals-based system which would suit only the very biggest economies, mm. perhaps only the very biggest economy. Mm. Um, and it would have a particular impact on, on the developing world, which we think would be uh, r really um, a poor outcome. We share a lot of the analysis that the US has or with, with China, and we have said that if China wants to be uh, a full member of the international mm. trading community, it must abide by the rules. And so the lack of transparency mm. over what is a state and what's a private company, um, the level of dumping that we've seen, uh, issues around forced technology transfer, for example, all need to be tackled. Mm. We think they're better tackled at the WTO. And we also think that the current US-China trade dispute um, is already having an impact on the global economy. And every new round provides another shock to that. Back in um, in the beginning of 2018, the OECD were saying that they thought at that time that the US-China trade dispute would have a negligible effect um, on the global economy. The latest estimate that they came up with is it would knock 0.8% off global mm. GDP this year. Mm. Now, <coughs> statisticians might will, will correct me, but that roughly means that um, if we see that drop in level of GDP that only about a third of countries are at or above trend growth and that will have an impact. But what's We're, the implication for what we do? So, so, the, so, the, so well, there, are, there are implications first of all for our economy. Mm. We've seen the, uh, in Q4 of 2018 we saw a drop uh, in Chinese imports of about 7.6%. That had a, an effect immediately on Western exporters mm. including us. Big effect on Germany. We've now seen German growth projections fall from 1.7 to 0.5 for this year. That will also have a Eurozone slowdown effect on the UK. Yes. The point I'm making is the trade disputes don't always affect just those mm. uh, in the dispute itself. There's often a cascade effect that can take some time to come through, uh, some of which we're seeing. Um, and in terms of uh, WTO, um, we think that all parties should address their grievances through an effective WTO system. Now, WTO requires a lot of updating, um, a subject we might want to touch on, <coughs> um, and the UK is going into that position of taking up our independency with quite a lot of ideas about how we can help do that. Um, but uh, notwithstanding the fact that it needs updating, notwithstanding that it needs probably some more teeth the WTO is the best, the best place for us to deal with international trade disputes in a legal framework. Okay, well, I suspect more will. I want to uh, unpick that. Let's, um, let's, let's come here on the aisle. Oh, thanks. And, um, uh, Nick Hadley, BBC. Uh, Secretary, quick question about the withdrawal agreement bill, if I may. There appears to be little prospect of an agreement with Labour and almost no prospect of some of your own colleagues in the DUP coming on board. So is this just a last throw of the dice from the Prime Minister? And if she loses that vote in three weeks' time, does she have to stand down? Um, I preface the answer by saying that we were always told that we talk about nothing but Brexit um, by the media. Uh, the, uh, yes, um, there will be an opportunity for 
MPs to decide after the local elections, after the European elections, um, whether they want to vote for Brexit or not. Uh, and I think that MPs will need to uh, look and see whether they uh, want to continue um, down a path that inexorably, I think, takes us to either uh, the potential of revocation of Article 50 or leaving without a deal and asking if they think that's the best course either democratically or, in, or economically for the UK. Uh, MPs will have to face that decision. As you know, I take the view that um, we decided to have a referendum because Parliament wouldn't or couldn't take a decision on our continued membership of the European Union. And we said we would honour whatever decision the public came to. Uh, the leaflets we all got through the door, which of course I criticised the government spending money on, um, said it's your decision and the government will implement it. When the government makes a contract with the people of that nature, it has to honour the contract. And I still hope that my colleagues will take the opportunity when we bring the withdrawal bill back to, to follow what I think was not advice but an instruction from the voters. And they will have to consider what the political consequences would be uh, of failing um, to carry out their part of the bargain. Okay, loads of hands going up. Let me just take a second. Okay, so you were early on, and then I'm going to come to the whole cluster here, and I'm going to come to you. Uh, thank you. It's Masato Kimura, a Japanese journalist. Uh, I wonder, Brexit is a sovereignism for you, and uh, so in Japan, waiting, I think it's a kind of sovereignism. And in Spain, uh, bullfighting, and in UK, fox hunting. So uh, in history, uh, UK lost F FTA, uh, EFTA, and, uh, but why you can still believe in FTA strategy? And uh, so it's a, a kind of sovereignty for me. Why, why continue with FTAs yeah. as a model? Well, um, FTAs are one of a number of tools that we have available. There's a, there are a number of academics who will argue that FTAs don't produce the same level of economic gain that they used to have, that the proliferation of FTAs has meant to some extent that they've lost comparative advantage, but they still provide a, a key tool in the, uh, in the toolbox. I think that uh, market access uh, agreements are likely to, to provide a, a lot of the economic impetus. We uh, recently agreed a market access agreement with China um, on milk, which may not sound terribly revolutionary, but we had, a, to give you a tiny example of that, China approved Irish milk to be imported to China and Northern Irish milk to be imported into China, but not the use of Irish milk to make yogurt in Northern Ireland that you could import into China. One regulatory change which we were able to negotiate was worth a quarter of a billion pounds to the Northern Ireland economy like that. So market access issues will be important. Plurilateral and multilateral agreements. Multilateral, of course, delivers the biggest uh, boost to the global economy, but as we know, are very difficult to negotiate. Plurilateral agreements, I think, are pretty much the way forward. The coalitions of the willing on things like e-commerce or digital and data, I think, are likely to produce um, a greater impetus. But uh, I think that we need to recognize there are a number of different tools available to us um, and we shouldn't simply focus on, on one um, because we need actually to be flexible uh, in things like liberalization of global services. Um, multilateral would be best if 
we can't get multilateral, we should go for plurilateral. And if we can't get there, we'll probably have to do multiple FTAs uh, to achieve it. Um, you know, the faster we can go, the better. Um, but because we can't get the best outcome doesn't mean we shouldn't use every other alternative. Thank you. Uh, over here by the wall, and then I'll... Thank you. Thank you very much. It's Matthew Holhouse from MLEX. I'd like to ask a, a further question about China. Um, in Europe, th there is the debate about how to respond to Chinese competition through uh, amending EU uh, merger rules. This was the, the Siemens-Alstom case, where the, during big mergers you, sh you should be taking account of Chinese competition. What, what's your view of that? And more broadly, uh, given that after Brexit, the UK won't be part of EU competition policy, it won't be subject to Commissioner Vestager's decisions on Google and Apple, should the UK be following that? Should the UK be doing something differently as it carves out an independent uh, competition stance? Well, since competition policy falls to Bayes and not to DIT, I'm going to be very careful not to trample um, on the wrong territory um, on that. Um, we will be, of course, producing our own rules around that. We're producing our own rules around investment as well, which is, is where my bit of the house really uh, comes in, particularly looking at security in terms of investment into critical national infrastructure. Uh, that will be a cross-government um, activity. Um, what I hope we get, actually, is an understanding from China that uh, behaving in ways that conform to international norms are the best way for China uh, to get acceptance and integration uh, into the global economy. Um, but uh, as for the competition ones, I'm going, to, I'm going to dodge that before Greg Clark starts sending me messages on my pager. Not all your cabinet colleagues are quite so circumspect. But, um, uh, let's uh, come here in the front, please. Hi, um, Emilio from Politics Home. Um, you warned against um, striking a customs union deal with the EU even temporarily just a minute ago. Um, would you say that was a resigning matter for you if the government did do that? Um, and also, question on the EU elections. What would be a sort of acceptable result for the Conservatives at the EU elections? And might you even be tempted to vote for the Brexit party instead of the Conservatives? No, I'll be voting Conservative um, for a number of reasons. Um, not least, I think that uh, where we, uh, our European, our MEPs have to take their seats, they'll have to deal with a range of issues. Um, being a single issue party is not sufficient qualification, um, I think, to take part um, in a parliament that deals with a whole range of different issues. Um, I also think from a party perspective um, that uh, uh, every vote that weakens the Conservative Party strengthens Mr Corbyn, which is the worst fate I can imagine um, for my country. Uh, so, no, I won't. Uh, what's a good result? I'm a former party chairman. How many party chairmen do you know who don't give you information that's either uh, tactical or evasive? Uh, on election numbers, uh, I'll, I'll resist the temptation except to say that I, I hope that uh, people do understand the wider impacts of what they'll be voting for uh, uh, on the 23rd of May. And you reminded me that I have to get my postal vote off today. So thank you for that. That's one more. Um, and. Uh, of course, we have a customs union built into the implementation period anyway, so there is a period beyond the point where we leave the EU that we have a customs union built in. Um, but what I want to see is the process done and dusted before we get to the next general election so that we can actually have some space to talk about the wider issues 
um, the, around the economy, around education, around crime, around foreign policy, so that our entire um, uh, debate is not totally around the, the Brexit issue. Because as I go around the country and around my own constituency, the further you get away from Westminster and the Westminster bubble, the less obsessed people are about the Brexit issue. They actually will talk about the issues that affect them um, and their families. Um, so uh, we need to better align ourselves with the rest of the country uh, as a political class. Thanks very much. Here in the middle. Uh, David McLeod, I have run businesses in each of the major countries in Europe, across Europe and uh, globally. Uh, I think we've accepted we're going to lose some business, supply chain companies I should have said, we're going to lose business uh, in Europe, so then we go to Asia Pacific and North America to replace that. There's only two ways to unseat an, a current supplier, one is to reduce the price and the other is to have competitive advantage. Uh, to reduce the price by 10% would mean there would be no profit and to produce competitive advantage means investment. How are we going to invest when we've just lost business uh, in Europe? What's wrong with my logic? Well, the, um, the question of supply chains in Europe, of course, uh, will be dependent on the level of alignment that we have particularly in, um, in goods. Um, we can't have frictionless trade with the EU unless we're in the single market, which people would accept that uh, as part of the debate. But we can move to as frictionless as possible. That will be uh, where we're, we're looking to be. I think that there needs to be an acceptance that in some sectors that we will probably want quite close alignment uh, with the EU because it's in our national interest to do so. There may be other sectors where we want less alignment. I think that's particularly true in things like services where we may have, we want uh, uh, wider divergence. There are, there are real issues, to go back to, to the point about the WTO, there are real issues about global supply chains that, that are quite urgently uh, needing to be dealt with. When WTO was set up in, in, in 1995, the world didn't have the level of complex integrated supply chains that we have now. And I hear people saying, well, the tariff rates for many of these are very low. It may be low, but if you apply it multiple times to the same commodities, you can actually come up with quite a big number. And what we need to do is we need to, to be reforming tariff policy globally on these supply chains um, because even, even simple things like what constitutes a good and what constitutes a service nowadays is becoming a much more blurred issue yet we're still working with the same legal framework that we had back in, uh, in 1995 to deal with that, the GATS-GAT uh, split. So um, there, are, um, there are big issues around that. Um, we can do things on tariff policy so for example when we looked at the day one tariff policy, we looked to see what sectors would be impacted, particularly those uh, uh, involved with intermediate imports of intermediate goods. So in the automobile sector, automotive, um, having zero tariffs um, on those elements would ensure that there was no price impact in the UK and therefore we wouldn't increase our input costs uh, for, uh, for the UK. So there are things that we um, can do there and uh, we can also of course be pushing for a greater share of global exports and I think that the real uh, job that government can do is to help business export. We estimate based, based on companies that are already exporting that there are around 400,000 businesses who are exactly the same 
who are not exporting at the present time. And we could do, be doing a lot to help those companies into market. The government needs to be an enabler. It's not for us to try to micromanage. But there's a lot more that we can do. Inside the European Union at the moment, Germany exports 47% of its GDP. We are exporting around 31% around we've gone up to in the UK. Whether or not we had left the European Union, um, we needed to do something quite dramatic about our export performance. Um, in my view, and I had argued this way back in 2005, that we needed to have a focus on international trade with the government trying to increase the share of, of UK, uh, of global uh, markets because we were being fed, uh, fed a false choice in balancing the country's budget. We were told effectively, you've either got to raise taxes or you have to cut spending. You don't actually, you can raise your income. Um, and we can, by helping our businesses get a bigger share of global markets, actually return more income back to the UK. Um, we're starting from a quite good place at the moment. Uh, our inward stock, investment stock, and our outward investment stock are roughly in balance. So we, we can, we're in a, a reasonable place to start that. But we need to do more to help businesses do it for themselves. When we did the export strategy, um, businesses told us very clearly what they wanted. They wanted to be better informed about overseas markets, culturally, economically, legally. They wanted to be better connected with the government's activities abroad. They wanted to be better funded, especially SMEs. Um, hands up, anyone in this, this room who knew that if you're an SME and you're part of a supply chain that leads to exports, you're eligible for UK export finance help. You don't have to be a final exporter to be in that position. There is help already out there. Um, and they wanted to be better encouraged by their peers. So there's a lot that we can do. But we needed to do this whether or not we were leaving the European Union is, my, I think, my key point. Um, we needed to give Britain a bigger share of the global market and give British companies better help to, to get into those markets. Let's try and get a, a few more in. Um, uh, I, I want to come to two here at once in the, in the front and then I'm going to come to the, 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 the two behind, and that may be what we've got time for. Uh, hello, Secretary of State, Lisa Ogawa from The Guardian. Um, at the beginning of March, the Americans um, published their trading objectives for a deal with the UK, um, and they spoke about unwanted barriers related to sanitary and phytosanitary um, standards in the farming industry. You've just said there are some areas that you think the UK could be, should be closely aligned to the EU, and is food one of those, and how acceptable do you think are... Um, these barriers um, uh, uh, that Michael Gove favours, i.e. Michael Gove has repeatedly said that food industry standards will not um, deviate from the EU, there will be no chlorinated chicken, there will be no beef or hormones in our beef. Thank you. So you want to answer this one and then if you can pass the microphone. Well, it's not just Michael Gove. I've said till I'm blue in the face, including in the House of Commons, although they say if you want to uh, tell someone a secret, say it in the House of Commons, because there's less chance of it being reported. Um, uh, I've said uh, repeatedly um, that we'll not reduce our standards um, as we move forward. We have uh, legislation that sets out, for example, on our, on our food safety and the standards. We have no intentions of changing that. But there's, another, there's a trading reason why we shouldn't want to change our standards. And that's because um, of the impact on our exporters. Barclays did a, a big global survey of consumers um, about a year ago now, maybe two years ago, time flies. Um, 
and it showed that 59% of Chinese consumers, about 60% of Indian consumers, would pay more for the same product if they knew it came from the United Kingdom. Why? Because you put that little union flag on it and it's regarded as a sign of quality. Uh, we can't compete globally at a low cost, low quality end of the market. We have too many fixed costs uh, in our economy. Um, we need therefore to compete at the high quality end of the market. Uh, and therefore the maintenance of, our, of high standards is part of that guarantee of quality in, in the goods that we export. It would be self-defeating um, to see us reduce uh, our standards. There's no advantage from a trading perspective in doing so. So no chicken? Well, I mean, the, um, the, there's, no, um, the, there's been no argument about food safety on chlorine-washed chicken. It's been an argument about animal welfare. Um, so it's not been about food standards per se. And so that's a slightly different um, debate, and much more difficult to quantify because the legal definitions around it at WTO uh, are much less. Good morning, Secretary of State. Adam Payne from Business Insider. Uh, are you disappointed that the Conservative Party's European elections leaflet, which I'm looking at uh, right now on my screen, uh, doesn't really mention either leaving the customs union or independent, independently striking new trade deals? Well, I can't remember when detailed policy was set out in a single flyer uh, by any political party. Um, and I think that uh, uh, I'm not sure that it's hugely relevant to international trade policy. I'm just going to leave shortly before half past, so let me, let me take uh, the, these two together. Uh, and, and sorry, these three together uh, here, all over here. Thanks. Nick, Nick Westcott, the Royal African Society. Talking to other governments in Africa, Middle East and the rest, they see Brexit as a great opportunity to uh, strike a new deal with the UK. Um, and one of the improvements that uh, some of those governments are looking for is to drop the human rights and governance uh, condition clauses that the EU currently insists on. Uh, will the IT, will the government be willing to sign trade agreements with no such conditionalities? Well, we take the human rights um, aspects very seriously. And what we've said is we'll take it on a case-by-case -case basis uh, where countries have legal systems, for example, which are shown to be able to guarantee uh, human rights and where, they are, uh, where the evidence base is there, then we might take a different approach from where countries are unable to do so and where we may uh, want to apply human rights elements with specific penalties uh, in those agreements. So we'll look at it on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, I would hope that the uh, improving human rights records in a lot of those countries would uh, not require us to apply some of those clauses in the way that they're applied today. But if we thought we needed to, then we would. Thank you. Straight in front. All right. All right. Who's got the microphone? Lovely. Yeah, that's all right. Um, hi there. Uh, Claire from the Department for Digital Culture and Media and Sport. Um, and again, a little bit off the wall, but you mentioned data a few times. I'm, I've just joined the, the data team at DCMS, um, and we'll be going out speaking to everyone everywhere. Um, very soon and if you had three top things that we could do with data um, nationally that would assist internationally um, what, would, what would those be? I know I'm putting you on the spot and we'd, we'd love to talk to someone at, at DIT in more depth but um, for international um, policy what could we do with data 
um, in this country uh, well, to we assist. Could, we, could, we could have the free, freedom to determine our own policy uh, would be very useful. Um, I don't think that in a modern economy you can move goods and services but not data. Uh, and therefore, I think a lot of the, uh, the, the, some of the EU ideas around data localization, for example, um, are hu hugely outdated. Um, it's as politely as I can put that concept. Um, uh, in a, with a number of countries that we've spoken to, one of the asks of the United Kingdom will be uh, the ability, greater ability to move data. And that's one of the advantages we have. It will be hugely frustrating to most of our European partners, however, because 24 EU countries plus the Commission are on one side of the debate, and four, Germany, France, Slovenia and Austria are on the other, but big enough to block. And this has implications way beyond UK policy. It's the reason why the US won't come back to the Trade and Services Agreement in Geneva at the moment, and probably the same area that the e-commerce agreement will get stuck. Uh, we've got to have movements of data and we've got to find better international standards um, and I think the EU is out on a limb here uh, and is, is, is very much against the trend uh, in the global economy. So one, two and three would be uh, ability to determine our data policy and make it more liberal. Thank you very much. Let's just squeeze in the last one. Thanks. Uh, Thomas Wills from Tradecraft Exchange which is a UK NGO that works on um, how trade can support international development. Um, and my question for you is, in what way will the UK's post-Brexit trading relationships uh, with developing countries improve on those that we currently hold as a member of the EU? Uh, well, thank you for that question because I think one of our, uh, the areas that we've been working on, and uh, Penny Mortensen has gone to defence, but I imagine we'll have the same re relationship with a successor, is how do we better align our trade and development policies? So. I've been very keen to encourage outward direct investment from the UK into developing countries, particularly in areas of infrastructure, but also in areas where we can add value to primary produce. Um, so can we invest to give countries the ability to process and can their own fish? Can they roast their own coffee beans, uh, for example? We face what I think is virtually an obscenity in trade policy at the moment when developing countries can sell their, their basic primary produce into the European Union at zero tariff, but if they add value to it, then they are effectively taxed uh, for doing so. Now, that cannot be what we want to see uh, economically, uh, or I dare to say morally. So what I would like to see us do is, first of all, encourage the investment to give those countries the ability to add value to the produce, and then by the ability to reduce tariffs and the freedom we have to reduce tariffs to reduce the duties on those to make it possible for countries um, to sell their own produce and trade their way out of poverty. That's what I want to see, a sustainable policy so they're less dependent on aid from the developed world, uh, the developed world and more able to, do, uh, to add value to their primary produce. Many of you here will know just a few years ago Germany made more money out of coffee than the African producers of coffee because they bought it, they got it in at zero tariff, they roasted it, packaged it and sold it to the rest of the world when that profit really should have been in the countries that were the primary producers. That's what we have to use an independent trade policy to do. There is, I think, a, a development and humanitarian 
element to trade policy if it's used uh, wisely. We're going to end on that note, um, a really interesting note. Uh, thank you for great questions. I suspect there are many more. It would have been if we uh, had time to go on. Uh, Liam Fox, thank you very much indeed for joining us. It's